The last time I sat in for a presenter on UK telly, it was Anne Robinson on Points of View. So it's been a while, but Nigel and I go back a ways. We won a tremendous victory on stage in Toronto a few years back in a debate against BBC telly historian Simon Sharma and UN Commissioner for Human Rights Louise Arbour. We cleaned their clocks, we kicked their butts, and any other robust vernacular you care to use. OK, I could gloat for the rest of the hour, but it's unbecoming. And I only mention the spectacular Farage Stein victory because today has seen a British humiliation in the English Channel. Only a day after the Chancellor of the Exchequer offered tax incentives to vessels flying the British Red Ensign, the French Navy has the old red duster in its crosshairs. The captain of a seized English trawler could face criminal prosecution in France. The British understand only the language of force, says Monsieur Clément Bonne, uh, the Europe minister, rattling his Eurosaber. Ce n'est pas la guerre, c'est un combat. This is not war, but it's a fight, says uh, Madame Annick Girardin, the bellicose French minister of the sea, and she's spoiling for it. I met Madame Girardin about uh, a decade ago in Saint-Pierre-Miquelon, actually. Delightful lady then, before she uh, decided she was the Marshal Foch of the post-Brexit era. Uh, their opposite numbers at Westminster aren't talking like this. None of them are talking like this. No parliamentary undersecretary for fisheries is threatening to rain down Agincourt with scallops on the warmongering Macron. Instead, Her Majesty's government is said to be uh, considering filing a complaint with the European Commission. Gee, it's almost like those guys are still in charge. The British government's official position is that it's, quote, disappointed. Is it time for Boris to butch up and say it may even be, quote, regrettable? Let me know your thoughts, gbviews at gbnews.uk. Joining me by telephone is Bruno Bonnell, a member of the French uh, National Assembly, l'Assemblée Nationale in uh, Monsieur Macron's party en marche. Uh, it's great to have you with us, Monsieur Bonnell. Is this really a dispute uh, about uh, fisheries policy, or is the French government uh, trying to teach uh, the government of the United Kingdom a slightly broader lesson here? Hello, Monsieur Bonnell. Okay. Hello. Uh, in, th in that case, we'll try, and, we'll try and get back. Is that Monsieur Bonnell? Are we? Uh, bonjour, Monsieur yeah. Bonnell. Salut. Hello. What do you make of this uh, French? What do you make of this Anglo-French fisheries dispute so far? Let's go to Jim hello, Portis, hello. For, and we'll try and get back to Monsieur Bonnell. Uh, Jim Portis is the chief executive of the South Western Fish Producers Organization, and he's been the lead negotiator in the Anglo-French fish talks. Jim, is this dispute even about fish at all, or is, uh, as, I, as I was trying to suggest to Monsieur Bonnell, is it basically uh, you're the designated fall guys for something bigger that's going on in Anglo-French policy? It's it's very interesting. Good evening, by the way. Uh, and uh, I'm I'm uh, the former chief executive of the Southwestern Fish Producer Organization, but I am still the chairman of the National Scallop uh, Group. So uh, we have a great deal of interest in this particular vessel. It's a it's a scallop dredger. 
It was detained uh, for simply not being on the uh, on the list in terms of external waters licenses. Uh, apparently, um, an administrative mistake was made somewhere possibly in Newcastle by the Marine Management Organisation. We're hoping that that will be clarified soon, but I've just checked and the Cornelis uh, Van Geert is still uh, tied up alongside in uh, Le Havre uh, under detention, which is obviously losing income from uh, from fishing activity and uh, the catch that's on board will be starting to deteriorate. Scallops are landed while they're still live yeah. uh, in the bags. And uh, it's a great disappointment that uh, the authorities in France have taken this action. We're, we're quite used to the French fishing industry uh, complaining about uh, British activity in these waters, but it's on this occasion, it's not the French industry. It is very much the French authorities that have that have taken this action. And uh, they will impose heavy penalties just for an administrative uh, error. Well, and you've had at least two cabinet ministers, you've had at least two cabinet ministers making uh, very warlike remarks uh, with reference to force, with reference to warfare. Are you concerned that this could actually escalate into something that uh, risks becoming violent over administrative errors? Well, we've got a, a, a very large uh, book of rules and regulations that are applicable to British fishermen and to foreign fishermen, whether they're fishing in UK waters or e EU waters. It's very easy to break the rules, uh, and we look for a pragmatic approach from UK authorities uh, when they're boarding French vessels and indeed uh, vessels from other uh, member states of the EU when they're fishing in UK waters. Uh, a, a simple administrative uh, uh, offence like this should have been dealt with much more lightly. Uh, when the French talk about tightening up on the regulations, I'm sure, I'm quite sure that the British could do equally. And the uh, the foreign fishermen of the EU catch about four times as much fish from British waters as uh, in the other direction. Mm. And I'm sure that we could apply similar administrative penalties as, as are being applied. No need to talk about uh, warfare or hostility, uh, but we could be um, equally dogmatic about the rules and regulations as they are. Well, this is all over, I think, according to the French, it's all over 32 fishing licenses for uh, French vessels. Does it seem odd to you that they are prepared to do this over 32 licenses? Well, when you consider that, they, that they've actually been issued well over 140 uh, licenses, uh, and the vessels that have been refused licenses, it, it's purely because they don't have the records of, of fishing in UK waters. Uh, on the other side of that coin, we have one in number, one only vessel that is entitled to fish inside the 12 mile limit of French waters. And the rest of UK activity is in the what we call the EEZ, the exclusive economic zone outside the 12 mile limit right. and they should be enabled to go about their business harvest the scallops and uh, to land them in the uk for uk fish processors the problem is as i understand it there may be an escal escalation 
next week on the 2nd of November, the authorities are talking about tightening up on the uh, the regulations for yeah. transporters uh, exporting uh, their goods into into France and also tightening up on landings by British boats. Um, the 2nd of November is you... the traditional day when the uh, British crabbers uh, land their catch into France and um, they can look right. forward to a tightening of the inspection regime. Uh, when they land in France next week. Do you think, do you think those scallops are going to make it out of La Havre in time? Uh, well, I, I sincerely hope so. The, the French are very, very passionate about the quality of scallops, uh, and they don't like mm. to see waste. Uh, so the French fishermen will want the uh, this British boat to be able to land its catch Rather than for all these scallops to uh, to die in the bags and uh, and to start rotting on the quayside. Well, thank you for that, Jim. Let's see if we can get uh, the French point of view and see if uh, Monsieur Bonnell is able to hear us now. Uh, uh, Bruno Bonnell from the uh, Assemblée Nationale. Uh, what's the French position on this uh, Anglo-French fishing war? Obviously, you won't be surprised to see that the French uh, attitude is quite the opposite. It's a chicken and egg situation. Uh, we do have 240 boats uh, of uh, French fishermen with no license granted. Uh, they're pending. Mm. And I heard, uh, I heard the person right before me talking about administrative error. I would say that, let's call it an right. administrative confusion, right? But it's 240, 240 boats. And effectively, I agree that uh, it's, it's, it's a kind of retaliation, clearly. I don't, I don't see why we should hide it. Mm. It's, a, it's, a, it's in a diplomatic world, you start by putting stick in the ground to show your muscles, and then you talk. Because so far, all the discussions have been useless. And as you just mentioned, scallops can't wait. So now there is a point where we need yeah. to say, okay, if you play, if you play hardball, we will have to play hardball. And, and, and we, the last thing the French authority want is an escalation. But they want to sit on the table and respect what was decided rule for the Brexit deal. Well, well, just just a mo just a moment there, uh, because when you're threatening, for example, to cut off the electricity to Jersey, so you're going to leave a, an entire population of British subjects sitting in the dark with their meat rotting in the freezer or whatever. That's pretty much an escalation, isn't it? Threats to actually cut the power off from Jersey. Yeah, well, uh, I think that uh, uh, as I'm a very optimistic person. French are always optimistic, you know that mm. for sure. Uh, I know that um, this is more a, a kind of theoretical threat, but to show that worse come to worse, we have we have dramatic uh. way to change life of the people. Well, ob obviously nobody wants this, and nobody is is going to harm our friends and allies from the UK. But uh, at the same point, uh, there is a point where where when when you don't. When you can't sit at the negotiation table in good faith and ask for respect of the regulation which have been decided, well, then you start playing hardball. And so that's why you're, you're saying that these cabinet ministers of Monsieur Macron, the ones who are saying the only language the uh, British government understands is force and it's not 
uh, war, but it is a fight. It is un combat. Um, you're saying that that's, that's just their opening bid on the negotiating table and we don't have to worry. The, the French still like the English. This is, this is just uh, the way they talk when they negotiate. Well, if you, if you compare what happened during the Brexit deal, till the last minute, yeah. till the last minute, I was even calling on your channel, mentioning a no-deal uh, no Brexit because... because the, the English yeah. authorities then wanted to wanted to sit on the fence, getting all the advantage of the Brexit, but keeping keeping the good relationship and, and all the benefits of the EU. Well, we respect the choice of the UK people. We respect the fact that we have a deal. Now we want this deal to be respected. Full stop. There is nothing more, nothing less. But but of course nobody wants to hurt again, our friends and allies from the UK. We just want to show that their authorities, they just listen to one thing, which is playing with all the, all the, all the, the trump cards you can have in your game and not just sit and say in good face, well, come on, guys, just give those licenses away. <laughs> well, let me just ask you this, just finally then. You mentioned the no-deal Brexit. If there had been a no-deal Brexit, uh, and, in, and in other words, there'd been none of these understandings about uh, moderating and adjusting the number of licenses and the proportion of non-British uh, fishermen in, in British waters. Do you think actually a no-deal Brexit might have been a lot cleaner? Well, a no-deal Brexit would have been a lot messier because uh, that would be just the peak uh. of the iceberg of a huge trade problem. And including, of course, all the Irish border issue, which uh, which was which was in the, in the game. So so I, I I consider that that because we did respect the Brexit because it was the will of the referendum, we had to find a way out. What I was what I was saying is that the negotiations were really harsh, and we had to really uh, uh, threat uh, about the New Deal Brexit potential. Uh, otherwise, I don't think that we would have ended up with uh, with a with a with a deal on time, which was really the issue. Well, well, thank you for giving us uh, that point of uh, view from uh, the Assemblée Nationale. Uh, merci, uh, Bruno, merci. et uh, à la prochaine. Uh, Boris, à merci, merci à vous. Cheers. Boris, à la prochaine. Oui. Boris Johnson may not be able to do anything about Frenchmen besieging the coast of Jersey right here, right now, but he's pretty confident he can lower sea levels off the coast of the Maldives in the year 2200. What's with the Western world's eco-obsessives uh, even as as the world uh, economy collapses. Give us your take at gbviews at gbnews.uk. Boris's Big Beano, COP26, is about to begin. It's already looking like Flop26. The Queen's pulled out, which is good, but even her Zoom message to an international conference is a constitutional abomination, given that uh, many governments have many different views on this particular public policy issue. Down under, for example, the Prince of Wales's recent nitwitted interventions uh, explicitly at odds with Her Majesty's government in Canberra have been the biggest recruiting agent for Australian republicanism in years. Chairman Xi in Beijing is also a no-show. He's got a prior engagement opening a new coal-fired coronavirus lab or something. Putin's skipping it. 
Uh, so it's basically just Boris and Joe Biden, a man whose carbon footprint seems to be reducing itself with every public appearance. And the rest of the Western world's do-gooders trying to drive whatever remaining sliver of their economy, the COVID didn't total, off the cliff entirely. So 30,000 people are flying into Glasgow to tell you guys you shouldn't be flying at all. On the eve of Flop 26, the world scientists are saying we need fewer flights and less meat to tackle climate change. The government's chief science advisor, Sir Patrick Vallance, says it's the small changes that matter. So no more cheeseburgers or flights to visit grandma for you. Joining us from Leicester is Dr. Karis Bennett from Peter, uh, the animal rights group. Dr. Bennett, uh, the, the, uh, the end of meat eating, that's to do with the, the bovine flatulence from, uh, from all the cows. Is that the thinking behind it? Good evening. Well, the United Nations is calling on people to shift to a plant-based diet because of the phenomenal amount of greenhouse gas emissions um, that animal agriculture causes. I mean, we've got Greta Thunberg, Chris Packham, leading scientists that are vegan themselves because they understand this is such a catastrophic cause of climate change. But it's not just climate change that's the problem with eating meat. It causes deforestation, pollution, species extinctions and pandemics. Going vegan is something we can all do. It can actually save you money as well. So yes, it's great to cut down on your flights and to change your energy use as well. But this is something that we can all be doing right now. And millions of British people are making the change already. Well, we've all seen the huge increase in recent decades in the number of, say, vegetarian and vegan restaurants all over the Western world. Uh, isn't it better to just leave it to natural changes in human taste uh, rather than government dictating what you can and cannot eat? The impact of animals, the, the sheer billions of animals that are on the planet that people eat for food, over 25 billion alive at any one time, is driving the climate crisis. There was a recent mm. study by RAP and they said 35% of the UK's greenhouse gas emissions comes from the food and drink sector. So it is something that governments should be addressing, but it's something we can all change in our everyday lives as well. Mm. If we just swap eating a beef burger to a burger made from beans, that will have a 20th of the greenhouse gas emissions. And it can stop you getting lifestyle is diseases like heart attacks, obesity. It's a win-win situation. Is Peter concerned about the way scientists, uh, pro-climate scientists, are treating animals? There was this study done at a German university that involved putting all these cattle in kind of harnesses to measure uh, their flatulence, uh, which wasn't any fun for the cows. The cows didn't look happy at having to stand around in the field in their flatulence harnesses all day. And when I had the worrying sense that if it works on cows, they'll soon be putting them on human beings too. Are you concerned at the way uh, scientists are actually treating uh, animals in, in the cause of science? I don't even want to get into Dr. Fauci in America with uh, killing all these beagles. Let's just stick with the flatulent German cows having to wear their flatulence harnesses. 
To be honest, the meat industry is struggling to try and say that they're sustainable. They're greenwashing meat. They're saying, oh, if animals eat seaweed, they produce less methane. But they're still producing far more greenhouse gases than if we just grew beans, lentils, peas, fruits and vegetables. We don't need to eat other animals at all. We don't need to experiment on them. These are sentient beings that we share the planet with. And cows are just such wonderful animals. They can recognize 50 members yeah. of the herd. They have their own friends. They can solve problems. What right. right do we have to experiment on them, to kill them for food, when we really don't need to in this day and age? Well, thank you for that, Dr. Bennett. Although, if I understand some uh, activists correctly, they're looking for a big... Uh, bovine apocalypse on this. I'd rather, if we have to get rid of them all, I'd rather, you know, drop all the flatulent bovines on the French fisheries ministry or whatever. Straight ahead on tonight's Farage with Tories like these, who needs socialists? Mark signing for Nigel. Let's get to your views on what's happening. Colin writes... Colin says, how can it be that the French can stop this boat from leaving, but can't stop a single migrant on a beach? You make a very good point, Colin. The best way to get that boat, that scallop boat, out of love would be to put 15 Libyan quote-unquote refugees on board, and it would be out of there in 20 minutes. Uh, Linda says, if the government gives in to the French demands, they will hold us to ransom again and again. Yeah, that's uh, what uh, we've been sort of tap dancing around a bit here. Uh, is this about fisheries at all? Or are the French trying to teach the more recalcitrant members of the European Union, such as the Poles, a lesson that if you, even if you do succeed in wiggling free, you don't really wiggle free? Andrew says the UK cannot take a robust line with France because we are so reliant on their electricity and the transit routes through France. You're suddenly beginning to get that impression uh, from Boris, uh, aren't you, Andrew, that uh, when Boris doesn't talk about things, it's because he'd like them to just quietly go away and forget about them. And whether the poor people of Jersey will end up like the hapless citizenry of Hong Kong remains to be seen. James says, go World Trade Organization. World Trade Organization equals no fishing rights to any EU vessels in UK waters. Yeah, this is, gets right to the heart of the question uh, underlying Brexit. Is the United Kingdom a sovereign nation? Uh, with its own national waters or not? And does it get to say who goes in those waters? Now we're stuck in this interminable uh, period of adjustment uh, that can go on for years. I think it's meant to go on for five years, but part of the... the uh, uh, the actual underlying cause of this instability is that they'd like it actually to go on for 10, 15, 20, 30 years so that, in effect, uh, fisheries remains uh, within the European Union, uh, whatever Brexit uh, says. Um, Paul says the UK should boycott all French goods and take a hard line with French fishing boats in British waters. Paul is saying escalate. 
I'm with you, Paul. Uh, normal, normal nations do not have cabinet ministers. As I said, I met this very nice minister of the sea back when she was a rather less important person on Saint-Pierre-et-Miquelon, uh, a French colony in North America, and she seemed a perfectly reasonable lady. Now she's doing all this warmongering, uh, talking about war. This is not the way normal, peaceable nations talk. Uh, to each other, and that is uh, something we should take at face value. Lewis says, the government are frightened of the French. In other words, we are gutless. As I said earlier, that's, that's Boris's way of, of dealing with this. He doesn't talk about anything. Boris thinks uh, he can solve the problem of rising sea levels in the Maldives. He can't do anything about Jersey. You weren't elected to do anything about the Maldives, Boris. You're Prime Minister of the United Kingdom in the year 2021. You're not Prime Minister of the year Maldives, uh, of the Maldives in the year 2200. So do your job. Robert says, is this not an act of hostility by the French? Uh, what isn't, Robert, by the French? Whatever happened, whatever happened to the low-tax Tories? The Office of Budget Responsibility says yesterday's budget leaves the tax burden at its highest since Clement Attlee's ministry after the Second World War. In case your grip on these fellows gets a little wobbly pre-Blair, Mr Attlee was a Labour Prime Minister. Britain has been ruled by Conservative Prime Ministers for 11 years now, or the equivalent of Mrs. Thatcher's entire tenure, and the place seems less conservative every day. Last month, Boris told his party the Tories are still the party of low taxation, but in fact the tax burden for the average household has increased by £3,000 just in the two years since he took over. That's not chump change. But if you pine for something a little more credibly conservative, who do you vote for? In England, the only alternative is Labour, which is like a Rishi Sunak budget, only more so, and without all the pro forma boilerplate promises to start cutting taxes a week and Thursday, well, OK, uh, late November, OK, 2023 at the latest. In the rest of the kingdom, there's a few more names on the ballot, but they all think like the Labour Tory push-me-pull-you, a pantomime horse with two rear ends. The Scottish, Irish and Welsh so-called nationalist parties all want to secede from the UK in order to set up a country exactly like the one they just left. On almost everything they talk about, these parties all sound alike, and on everything worth talking about, they've got nothing to say. Other countries, Canada, certainly have this problem, but Britain has a particularly advanced case of sclerotic, big-government, multi-party consensus. Joining me is Conservative peer and polling analyst Lord Hayward. Lord Hayward, uh, do you uh, get the feeling from your polling that people would like a slightly wider choice uh, in England and the rest of the UK uh, in the available viable political parties? I think the indications are at the moment that they don't like any of the parties particularly, but they probably prefer the Conservatives uh, most. But that's most out of a bad collection is probably the best way of putting it. Um, the reaction to the budget yesterday has been pretty favourable at the rate of two to one, three to one of those who've been polled already. The issue that I think we really don't know is how they're going to react when the tax increases really start taking effect. Because as you say, we're talking about very substantial tax increases for most people, which will probably take up 
any increase in pay uh, which people are likely to receive because all the indications are at the moment that pay rises are going ahead not at the same rate as the tax increases. So you're saying that, in effect, people aren't aware that, that Boris is uh, putting up their taxes at uh, 1,500 quid a year? Yeah, I, they aren't. Um, what happens, you and I may watch these sorts of things in detail with uh, gripped attention, but there was a study done overnight, and in fact 50% of the people who were surveyed actually said they didn't know enough detail as yet. And what I'm suggesting is they will know the detail when they start receiving the demands for tax payments in one form or another, because they've come in a series of announcements over the last few weeks. Uh, it wasn't just budget day. So they're pretty substantial. Yeah. Uh, and most people won't, don't know what they're going to be charged until they actually get the bill. Well, the last year and a half has been so bizarre, not just in the UK, but elsewhere in the developed world. Uh, but in the UK in particular, uh, in a sense, this new regime, high tax regime, is here to stay, isn't it? I mean, it is going to take maybe decades to dig the country out from a year and a half of lockdown and, 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 uh, and an artificial throttling of the economy. I there's no question it will take a long time to pay the bills that have been incurred in, in the last two years. Of that, there's no question. We aren't alone in that position. Uh, a large number of other countries are in exactly the same position because effectively uh, it's been a health war rather than a military war, but we've been fighting a health war for the last two years. And to cope with that, um, the government has gone on uh, a spending spree uh, and there's no question the debts will be there for many years to come. And in the long run, I mean, people, it's quite incredible, actually. It's, this is basically the highest tax uh, regime within living memory. Uh, yeah. Do you think uh, that the taxis can recover their low, uh, the, the Tories can recover their low tax reputation? I think it's going to be very difficult. There's no question that if you look at the subtexts of the announcements yesterday and previously, um, the intention is that by 2023 stroke 2024, that they will be moving away from some of the tax levels which they've announced in the last few weeks. That is the intention. But you and I know only yeah. too well that it's... You know, income tax was introduced in the early 1800s as a temporary war measure. Yeah. What we've seen now is yeah. a, a series of tax adjustments to cope with COVID. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, there's a question mark over whether the government will be able to cut the taxes in the next year or so. I'm not so sure. But there's also a question mark over the health service. The health service uh, has a capacity to consume money at a phenomenal rate at the moment. Um, and they're oh, going to have to show that what they've been given is, is being well spent. 
Absolutely. Uh, Let's leave it there, Lord Hayward. I don't think there's any point in talking about 2023 or 2024, because who knows which Delta variant of Epsilon strain of double mutation will have emerged uh, emerged from the Wuhan Institute of Virology by then. Uh, Up next, uh, Talking Pints asks, how do you solve a problem like a bee? The hills are alive with the sound of lager. Moments away on tonight's fact. Welcome to Talking Pints. If you're one of the hundreds of millions of people around the world who've seen the film of The Sound of Music, you'll know that it ends. Warning, plot spoiler, if you're one of those three guys living in the jungles of New Guinea or the only people on the planet who haven't seen it, plot spoiler, Uh, The film ends with the Von Trapp family uh, fleeing Austria and climbing up the Alps to head for Switzerland. If they were ever going to make Sound of Music 2, it would begin by showing that something went terribly wrong. They took a wrong turn and came down in the green mountains of Vermont, where Baron Von Trapp bought a farm, and the family turned that farm into a hugely successful ski resort which has been running for well over half a century now uh, almost 70 years i think uh, and uh, have diversified into brewing so we're actually drinking here von trapp beer with authentic von traps johannes von trapp uh, who is the son of baron von trapp and uh, maria and sam von trapp who is the grandson of uh, the Baron and his lady. Uh, so, uh, what do they say in Austria? Prost? Prost. 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 So this is actual Von Trapp beer. They didn't get this in the, uh, in the film or in the musical, uh, but you can drink Von Trapp beer. And Sam, uh, tell us w- what that is that you're you're drinking. Yeah, so I'm drinking the Oktoberfest here. Oktoberfest. Coming to the end of the Oktoberfest season. We had our celebration long ago because, of course, we do ours in September. But right. Still a good beer to drink on a on a gray new uh, almost November day. Yeah, that's uh, that's true. And you had us. You've uh, broken. You won the wagon I, for a couple of weeks, but you've broken that for us. What, I what want you? to honor your show by uh, having a Hellas. A Hellas. And which one have I got here? I think you I have a dunkel. A dunkel. Now they're all very Teutonic names. Your beers. Well, the beers. My my idea was to recreate the sort of beer that you can get if you're driving through Austria, mm. and you stop in a small village and you go mm. into the inn, mm. and you order uh, a meal and you have a beer with it. Right. And uh, afterwards, you don't have a headache. You don't feel uh, sleepy. Uh. You, you just uh, feel wonderful. Yeah. That's so my goal was to create the same kind of beer. Well, that, let me ask you about that, because um, your family were very glad to get out of Austria, as, as we all know from, from the plot of the show. Uh, but one thing they must have regretted when they landed here is uh, that by common consent, if you've got uh, Germanic tastes in beer, the beer in America back then was pretty bloody awful, wasn't it? Well, uh, having gone to college here, I have had a few beers on occasion. <laughs> and uh, um, I, I wanted to create 
what I described, you know, a, uh, a light beer that you could drink with your lunch and not right. feel sleepy, still be able to work afterwards. Okay, uh, well, I'll, I'll test that uh, thesis. Good. Uh, see whether I uh, doze off after the uh, commercial break. Let me ask you how it's been going during this very weird time we're living in. I, every, everyone's heard about mm, the problems good. with the uh, supply chain and everything. I, as I was driving uh, along, uh, I heard something on the radio uh, a couple of hours ago that said there is now a glass shortage and there are unlikely to be bottles to put beer in. And they were talking about serving champ uh, uh, putting champagne in pouches. You know, like those little oh, pouches yeah. of pineapple <laughs> like a juice. Tetra pack or yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we uh, maybe it's finally time for us to sell the last pallets of uh, clean bottles we have in there because we are now putting all of our beer in cans. Mm. Um, and actually, we haven't bottled for about two years now. Mm, mm. But there have been shortages on multiple different fronts. Uh, aluminum has been a big one. Cans right. have really affected all the breweries. Right. At one point, there was a CO2 shortage. Right. At one point, it was difficult for us to make sure our malt would arrive on time because all of our malts come from Bamberg, wait, wait, Germany. Wait, wait, wait a minute. So there's a CO2 shortage. There was. That's, I think that's uh, carbon... Uh, carbon dioxide. Well, wait we, a minute. We, isn't, isn't the thing... Yeah, we produce uh, the, CO2. Yeah, but aren't yeah. we being told, aren't they all just meeting in Glasgow now to reduce CO2? Right. Yeah. And yet there's a global shortage of CO2? Well, How does that happen? And, you know, some breweries have enough technology to be able to capture the CO2 from fermentation and scrub it and then reuse it. We're right. not at that scale yet, although I've heard there are some new technologies. My dad and I have been talking about recently some newer technologies allowing that. But in reality, when the beer is fermenting, usually the CO2 is just bubbling out. Right. And it's a lot easier for a brewery of our scale to just buy CO2 uh, for whatever other uses we need. We use it for purging tanks. We don't actually have to use that much CO2 to carbonate our beers because we're able to naturally carbonate them. So we only need to brush up the carbonation for a, the final 5 or 10% that they require. But, but just, just, so, cause I, uh, just to get the hang of it, you can actually have in market terms a CO2 shortage. And, and at, this, at the same time as the politicians are all saying there's too much CO2. I think it's yeah. a, di a distribution issue. Right. You know, you, you've seen pictures of the 50-odd ships anchored off the port of Los Angeles. Yep, yep. Um, <laughs> yeah. Containers of CO2. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's also a matter of controlled CO2 versus the CO2 that's just being expelled. Okay. But, uh, but okay. no, the... the Supply chain issues have been a challenge on, on many different yeah. fronts for us. And sometimes it's simple little things like T-shirts right. or discs, our logo discs for the disc golf course that have our Von Trapp Brewing logo on them. But, you know, we, you get around them uh, each time. We've managed to continue to produce beer. And it's been nice to see people really focusing on lagers. A lot of people, I think, have been... Yeah realizing that during the pandemic they were drinking a lot and they decided that maybe they don't need to drink 8% alcohol beers anymore. Maybe they want something a little more sustainable, like this 4.9% <laughs> Hellas. So su uh, sustainable, sustainable alcohol, that's a, uh, that's, a good, that's a good concept. Uh, l let me ask you something, because you mentioned the t-shirts. The, the thing about this is it, you, you aren't in a merchandising business. This isn't part of a Sound of Music theme park. Everyone made a gazillion dollars out of the Sound of Music. Rodgers and Hammerstein made a fortune. 20th Century Fox made a fortune. 
But you guys didn't because your mother sold the rights for $9,000, which there must be times there were, when you have, uh, have thought, I wish she'd had a better lawyer or I wish she'd had a better business manager. Or True. Uh, but then my mother never listened to anyone. So mm. when she wanted to do something, she went ahead and did it. Right. right. Um, but the fact of the matter is that uh, uh, the film people were very decent and Mary Martin, who mm. portrayed my mother on Broadway, yeah. was very decent, and they made sure that we got a small participation in, in that. So we did get something. Right, right. It, it, isn't, it wasn't only the $9,000. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm but, glad to... But I'm, the original rights were sold for that, yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm very glad to hear that. But it does mean that you have to make uh, everything you've done since we, The Sound of Music a to, real business. We need to make uh, our living here, yes. Yeah, yeah. And now you, you have a slightly ambivalent attitude to uh, what people think they know about your family. I, I, I was... Uh, You've been doing your research. Well, no, I heard that from your niece many, many uh, years ago that, you know, she used to talk about the real songs that your family, and she'd call them the Von Trapps songs and then she'd call the Rogers and Hammerstein ones the non-trap songs yeah. mm -hmm. that was that was her little uh, that that was her little thing but I I was astonished to hear that the piano player at the trap family lodge when you walk in the room he doesn't play the lonely goat herd or do re mi he plays desperado which is an eagle his, song his his transitions were wonderful <laughs> if if he saw me coming he would go from uh, uh. Climb every mountain to <laughs> Desperado or something similar. It was wonderful. And, is, and that's just because he was sensitive to uh, uh, what? A certain exasperation with all the. Well, you can imagine that I, I've heard the songs a few times mm, mm. and I've had to sing them a few times. Right. So it's nice to, when I go to the lounge, uh, it's nice to sit down with a beer and listen to something else. Well, it's, 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 uh, it's flattering in a way to have the story of your family be famous. But I remember your, your brother Werner, who uh, his name was changed to Kurt yep. in the film. So he, he couldn't understand why, you know, Hollywood had felt the need to improve on your names, as it were, that even that can't be accurate. It's a, it, it's a mixed blessing. Yeah, it's it? definitely a mixed blessing. Yeah. And you, Sam, are you uh, you're kind of uh, clear of all that because you're an, a generation removed from it? Yeah, I think it's easier for our generation. I, I grew up uh, sort of inheriting some of the same attitudes mm. of mm. keeping the movie a little bit at arm's length. Mm. Um, but then over time, it was easier for me. My name wasn't changed. Right. You know, it was my grandfather who was portrayed as being more distant from his children, you know, not, yeah. not my father. And so, yeah, I've been able to make peace with the sound of music. We do history tours here at the hotel, and it's become a pretty big part of what we do during certain times of the year. And those chances to interact with the public and hear people's experiences of how sound of music had a positive impact on them. Um, has really helped us to get away from focusing on the factual discrepancies and instead <laughs> recognize that the, the overall message of the values and principles of the sound of music are all accurate. 
You, you came from a large family, and uh, in, in uh, the show and, and the film, uh, you all look at, you're all children, you're all cute, everyone looks as if they're getting along. And, and after your mother died, which I think is something like 35 years ago now, something like that, uh, then, there, then there were, for a while, there were all these like uh, fractious disputes and you weren't getting along a and thing. You've very much been, your line, as it were, has very much been the driving force behind the business of the Von Trapp family. And you seem to be in a situation now where even if, if everybody lost interest in the film and the show tomorrow, there'd still be a Von Trapp a brewing company and a trap family. Oh, absolutely. Mm. Um, I think our our property here has become a, a resort that it appeals regionally and and even nationally. Yeah. Um, and uh, we have a loyal clientele, and uh, the the property is is definitely a, a business that will continue for a long time. So we went from having our quietest period in our history when we were shut down completely yeah. during the early part of the pandemic to just having had now in 2021 our busiest summer and foliage ever. Um, so yeah, it's been uh, exciting. We've all uh, brushed off our skills to do different things, uh, jump into the dish pit and wash some dishes on the day that no dishwashers showed up, or right. uh, <laughs> on a Saturday when we're turning over 84 guest houses for a right. new group coming in, uh, maybe go clean some bathrooms. You, you've um, always done it a bit like that, because uh, Elizabeth, your cousin, told me she used to make the dandles yes. for yeah. the waitresses yeah. here. So there's so, always been an and, element and of that. The family always had a strong work ethic. Part yeah. of the story that people don't know is the family actually lost uh, most of their fortune um, before they came to the United States. So, right. Uh, they were already working hard. Is the trick a balancing act? Um, you, you were when when there was a little uh, a lonely goat herd knickknack that was sold in the gift shop here. They kept it out of sight from you because they knew you wouldn't like that. I notice, you know, uh, you're not naming your beer. You know, high on a hill was a lonely barmaid. You're not like uh, you're, you're you're not going all in on that kind of thing. You're it's a balancing act for you. It is a balancing act. I mean, I, I'm perfectly happy using our name uh, which uh, I think is is well known and well recognized right. um, I, I don't want to use uh, sort of the Assad's fame right. of the film right right but uh, I'm perfectly happy uh, using our name and, and our reputation in marketing our product well, it is a name that, uh, as I said, hundreds of millions of people still know, which is kind of amazing because it's over 60 years now since the, uh, the Broadway show and almost as long since the film. So it's terrific beer. Long may it, uh, long may it continue. And this is Thank you. a legacy that I think will, uh, will compete with, uh, with the songs on that. Thank you, Johannes von And prost to you. And we will be back with Barrage the Farage. Uh, 
no Farage to Barra, so maybe it's stumped the Stein. Let's go. Will China and India follow suit, says Trevor, and join us in eating broccoli and carrots for the rest of our lives? No way. Chairman Xi, right now, he's settling down to his bat tartare, bat à l'orange, and for dessert, bat à l'imperatrice, and he's not interested in whatever scientists may find about bat flatulence. Alan says, will Boris ban cows, sheep, and pigs, along with diesel cars by 2030? Uh, no, the flatulent bovines are going to be repurposed as ministerial limousines. You're going to love seeing the Lord Chancellor ride around on a flatulent bovine. That'll do it. If you're flying the Red Ensign, beware of Frenchmen.